This is Michael Shapiro, your host. Welcome to Interplay, Conversations in Music. Today I am blessed to have, straight from Austin, Texas, Anton Nell, pianist extraordinaire. Thank you for joining us on Interplay. It's a pleasure to be with you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anton. Now, you know, if you read your biography, <laughs> which is available on your website, it talks about a career spent in love with music, uh, a career that is based, in my mind, in what a musician's musician is. Uh, the uh, pre presentation, let us say, of music and looking for the essence of what is in every piece. I first encountered your playing actually fairly recently in a YouTube uh, a version of the Egyptian concerto of our friend in common, Camille oh Saint-Saëns. You know, I've been to his grave, the family grave in Montparnasse, wow. and not in great shape, that, that, that little tomb of his. And it's amazing that he's even in there because of the size of what he was. But, um, yeah, it's not doing so well in Montparnasse. And there were some very good restaurants I met at. But in any event, when I heard the Egyptian, I said, oh, my heavens, what an absolute incredible pianist. So let's talk about, because I'm a pianist in my background, although I'm a practicing composer. When you approach a piece, let us say it's the Egyptian of Saint-Saëns, the fifth piano concerto, can you describe to people what's your process? I know that you're very much a virtuoso of, of many of the concerti uh, of Saint-Saëns, but let's say just the Egyptian, which is a very unusual piece. What was your process in starting the occasion of playing that piece? Well, with a piece like that, of course, it's something that I had heard before, and that's what attracted me to it. I had heard of it, and then I heard it. And, you know, subsequently when I was asked to play it, of course, this was very, very, very exciting. So it is something that is in my ear, which I would... I think when you've heard it before, you approach it differently than when you learn something that you have never heard or don't know. Right. So uh, basically for me, when I learn a piece, is I do a lot of reading of it first, even if it's very rough, just to get a basic idea to lay out immediately what the challenges are, both artistically and technically. And in that case, of course, it's a compendium of virtuoso exercises. So you practice those sort of separately. A lot of it, the last one, for example, is sort of like an etude. But then when you get into it, it is something I find that is so colorful and so exotic and um, there's a certain sound world that you have to go into, that you have to cultivate when you work on it. Because I feel that when you play something like that, of course, it's, it's going to sound flashy and amazing anyway. But I think it has such a big artistic component that you have to bring forth. Plus this whole sort of exotic atmosphere. I mean, he composed it in Egypt for crying out loud. So you have to, <laughs> you know, you, you know, so that it's, it's an interesting, I mean, it's like a giant character piece. And when you get into the second movement where he uses those wonderful scales and, you know, some, you know, song that is sung by the boatman on the Nile, etc., etc., It's, it's fun. I love the process of learning it, even though it can be frustrating at times because it is so difficult. But of course, with Saint-Saëns being who he is, I mean, he was a genius when he wrote for the piano. So, um, the rewards are terrific. I mean, you practice it and it does stick, you know, sort of like Liszt or Debussy or Chopin. It does, it sticks well. 
It's a pleasure to play that. Well, he obviously knew in the hand what to do. Mm-hmm. Now we'll shift to Schubert, for example. Oh, yes. I, I know you play the impromptus splendidly, for example, in my experience. Here was a different person, obviously. Sassons had a long life. Aaron Copeland even met him in Boulanger's soiree one night. Aaron told me years ago when wow. he was a kid. Wow. I read at the end of Sassons' life, which is fascinating. Sassons obviously heard The Rite of Spring, famous story. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during the Egyptian, you have this cosmopolitan person in Sassons. Mm-hmm. Wrote it in Egypt. I think he died in, the, in, in North Africa. Yes, in Algiers, maybe. Yeah, yeah. He loved to travel. So in any event, but we talk about Schubert, who basically lived in one place, right? Yes. Never even went up to Beethoven, although he could have, was too shy, had a small group of friends, sometimes slept with his glasses so he could compose immediately when he got up. So says the stories. Yes. But you look at the Schubert pieces, different style. So let's talk about him as a transitional composer. What is your process there? Oh, gosh. Well, with Schubert, I mean, he's one of these people that... When I teach Schubert, for example, this, this is a good, would be a good thing to say, because I approach Schubert sort of like I teach him to my students. Understood. I mean, for me, everything in him is related to song. So for me, when I study a Schubert piece, even if I, even if I know it, I go back and listen to, the, you know, as many songs as I can lay my hands on. I love the chamber music. I love listening to the string quartets. Um, you know, some of the symphonic music, Rosamunda, all of these things. I, and this I do pretty much with every composer. I mean, I immerse myself in the music of this composer, often not piano, because, I mean, when Schubert wrote for the piano, I mean, it's, of course, he wrote beautifully for the instrument, but so much of it, what I like the best about Schubert, and this is, you know, in absolutely everything he wrote, is he will, he'll write a phrase, and you go, oh, that's really beautiful, and then in the next phrase, it'll be the same thing, but he might alter one note in it, and suddenly the entire emotional content of the phrase is turned around. And just like in his songs, you know, he'll write the same phrase, and in the first, in the first phrase, he might use the word life, and then death in the next one. And it's just, it is just astonishing to me. And so for me, exploring that, of, of course, what, what I, you may know this, but, but in recent, oh, in the past 10 or 15 years, I've been doing a lot of playing on historic instruments. So I've gotten to know a lot of these instruments that this music were, were, was written for during the time. So, and that changes a lot of um, decisions that I make when I do the interpretive artistic side of it, um, you know, how I voice, how I pedal, how I articulate, how I read it, how I read the score, all of that is now, I, I'm so much more informed than I ever was. And I think that contributes a lot. But with Schubert, above all, it is this, um, you know, it is this world that is, well, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just amazing to me. I mean, it's one of these people where I, you know, I'm always in awe of how a human can create what he did, and so much of it. In such a short time, even shorter than this fellow over my 
I see uh, him. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he might have known. You know, I don't know. These people knew. I mean, they they didn't have long, but it is amazing to me. I, I am always playing Schubert, and I think I have five students at the moment playing Schubert sonata. So I am immersed on a daily, ba daily basis. Well, what you just spoke about, Antonel, was the the conversation in his songs between life and death, which is often something which he may have been thinking about. Maybe he knew he was sick from venereal disease. We don't know. Mm. You know we know so little about him. It's, I think it's even less than we know about Bach, for example. It's a tiny, tiny bit. Yes. But, but the, the music it, explains yeah, yeah. a lot. Well, all right. So let's talk about major and minor. Okay. And modulation. Okay. Which I love to do in my own music now. I shift all the time for mm -hmm. dramatic purposes. You can write about death in major keys. Yes. Which he does. Mm -hmm. But Schubert certainly does, doesn't he? He does. Now, let's shift to this guy. I just read oh, this guy, this little Amadeus behind my shoulder. Yes. Which you certainly do play. You play the concerto, you play the sonatas, you play the chamber music. Everything, yes. Everything. And you've grown up with him. Different kind of style completely. Jan Swafford recently, who's been on Interplay, re, uh, talked about this, about his new book oh, about, wow. Mozart, about Mozart. Mm. You know. And he talks about how the Mozart period was a period of love that Mozart gave. He also speaks about tunesmithing, which is very important to me as a composer, I have to say. Because I think the composers who last are the great melody writers of no matter what period. And if they don't have great melody, then you're looking for some other thing. You know? And we can point to examples now or in, in history. Mm. What makes Schubert's melodies ring so true for you in our ears? Gosh. Still staying with Schubert. Well, that's so interesting. I mean, and I think I think Mozart has this has the same sort same of thing. thing. It's something. Uh, it's interesting. I had this chat with a friend of mine the other day. I have a, a a friend who comes over every couple of weeks, and we actually we play a lot of Schubert piano duets together. And we Marvelous. were we were marveling at this thing because, and we were saying the same thing. So, what is it about this that is so beautiful? And we decided that it's the fact that it is something that is so simple, but at the same time, so expressive all at the same time. Yeah. And we sort of decided, you know, after a few glasses of wine, that that greatness can really be defined as a person who can perform miracles with almost nothing. That's great. So that it's not this, because with him, with him and like with Mozart, I mean, there is never an excess, but the, the you know, you can play something and no matter or sing something, or no matter what the level of sophistication of the listener, they are touched by this without knowing why. I love that. Now, Beethoven mm -hmm. and Haydn. Oh, yes. <laughs> different, different, different. Beethoven struggled deeply. We know this from the books that have lasted, you know, the, the, uh, his workbooks. He struggled deeply with writing melodic line. Well, I think it was very, very easy for Mozart and Schubert. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. And this is true throughout history. I mean, if you look at Gershwin, for example, melody was so easy for him. Definitely. And he worried about a lot of... I know you play, you play the Gershwin 
uh, piano works. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the tunesmiths in history, it just flows. And then there's others who can create great stuff, but they really have to work at it. Jerome yeah. Kern, they used to say, by the way, would pick out individual notes and kept, keep on jumping up and down the 12 notes until he hit the right one, which I find interesting for somebody who really had to work at it. Well, there's others like Richard Rogers or Gershwin, or just it just yeah. came out. To use recent tunesmiths, you know, for 100 years ago. Um, yes. Do you feel technically, because you were a teacher of piano for many years at UT Austin and other places, you do a lot of master classes, do you feel that there is a position of the hand or the use of the fingers which differs work to work? Or is it pretty much steady composer to composer as far as hand position and finger usage? It varies a lot. Ah. It varies a lot. Um, it's just, just on a sort of a... I'll try to explain it on a very basic kind of level. Because there are, or, or there used to be, I don't think so much anymore, but there used to be sort of different schools of piano playing, you know, oh, yeah. like the so-called Russian school and the so-called French school and then the sort of the German, you know, the schnabel, whatever school. They, and they all sort of held their hands in a slightly different way. Um, but the basic, uh, and, the, and I teach this way too. Um, my teacher in South Africa, by the way, was a Leszczycki student who studied with Liszt. And my teacher knew Debussy and Ravel and Britain and, you know, heard Rachmaninoff. He had all these people. I mean, I was a very lucky person. He made, the first, he made the first ever long playing records on deck of the Debussy etudes and played the world premiere of the Hindemith Piano Concerto under John Barbaroli. I mean, this is the kind of where, where I come from. But he, but he had a very basic way of teaching. His name, please. His name is Adolf Hallis, H-A-L-L-I-S. And you can find some of him on YouTube still. I mean, I studied with him between the ages of about uh, 13 and 20. It was, it was a very significant part of my life. Wonderful. You know, in a, he had, I had music in my hand, you know, with Ravel's handwriting in it. You know, I played, you know, Gaspar de la Nuit, and he would say, well, Ravel said, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or my teacher said, Liszt said, okay. So this was awesome. But um, just to get back to the technical aspect, that was where I was taught um, when this sort of sounds like mumbo-jumbo to the average person, but it's really important because, I mean, the basic way a sound on the piano is produced is, I mean, you press a key down a hammer, it's a string and the sound comes out. I mean, that is the thing. But then we are these con artists who give the impression that we actually <laughs> can, can connect things together, make sound sing play legato this is all nonsense but we create the illusion that this happens and it's by this super fine gradations in other words the speed that the hammer hits the key from one note to the next and how much you space how they're connected how they're graded it's so fine i mean that's the whole art of piano playing it's right there and the way you vary the speed of the of the key is of course with the most immediate attack would be with a curved finger. So you, if you do that with on the on the tip, it'll be the quickest attack. So you can use that for brilliant, articulate, and things like that. But the but the flatter you get, the slighter delayed because it's not quite as quick here. So it's in a tiny bit a little slower. So that's why you see a lot of people, for example, play. Um, 
say say you say you watch Horowitz, for example. Yeah, play, I, he, I wanted to ask you about flat, that. He played with very flat fingers. He did. And a lot of that got that very specific sound. It was his sort of way of playing cantabile, which um, slight de slight delays of the uh, you have the hammer hitting the string. So all of that. People do that a lot, you know. Some people, uh, you know, the the old French school played slightly flatly, but with very high kinds of fingers, which I, I, doesn't work for me. But um, but but whatever you uh, whatever you do uh, or try to do to to bring the music to life, of course, is the thing. But that's a very basic principle. It you you change you change around a lot, and of course when you play when you play on early instruments where the keys are short, you or you automatically play very much with more curved fingers because you know other unless you can sort of go on the Jenny Craig diet and make your hands smaller, it's just it's amazing. It's fascinating, really fascinating. I have very big hands. I, wow. I can do huge hands, and I, I I cannot play Mozart well. I never have been able to. Are you sure? I don't know. Are you sure? No, it's... But my Brahms, I mean, Brahms and Schumann, that... I feel I can play much more easily. Well, I, I, I think I need that you that as was... my teacher. <laughs> oh, well we, well, we can Zoom. This is very fashionable, you know. Okay, let's Zoom. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, all of that stuff... Um, of course, the less notes there are in the score, the harder it gets. I mean, you know, playing Bach and Mozart well is... It's so rewarding, but it's, it's super challenging for everybody. Anton, now talk to us about the keyboard instruments behind you, because we have obviously a pianoforte, conventional black, it may be a Steinway, I would think, or Yamaha. It is. The Steinway. But tell what is the other instrument? Oh, it's something that I love. Normally there are three instruments here, but the other one is is has is out for a visit. That, oh. is, that is a forte piano. Ah. Um, which is which is an instrument I play very ser seriously and I love. That is that is a copy of a Viennese instrument from the 1790s. It's a five octave instrument. Um, it's something that Haydn would have had. Mozart and Beethoven certainly would have played on something like that. Um, I play. Who was, the, who was the maker? I, I'm sorry. Who was the maker oh, in Vienna? Excuse me. In Vienna? The maker of this instrument is he's he's a man called Robert Smith, who's from Massachusetts. Um, he. Probably the most famous forte piano maker in the world there is a man oh, no. called Paul, Paul McNulty, who, who lives in who lives in the Czech Republic. But but the, he apprenticed with this guy, so this was just like a cousin. So um, it's a replica of an instrument by a guy called Koenigke, which is sort of with Walter and Stein. Um, it's in that league, uh, and that was very very fashionable in the late 1700s. And pretty soon after this one, the range, of course, expanded. This is only five octaves, but right. you can play everything up until, you know, middle Beethoven on it. It's marvelous. So we can do Beethoven Opus 1, but uh, you're not going to do the uh, the Waldstein or... It, oh. You can play the Waldstein on it, although it, 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 the Waldstein only goes up to the G there, but the Waldstein wasn't written for a Viennese instrument. Beethoven got an error, and that was what it was written for, so you shouldn't play it on there. But this is especially good for things like Haydn and C.P.E. Bach, Amazing. I didn't realize he got. I, I remember him getting a, a a British instrument. I didn't know about the air art. That's fascinating. He did, he did, and he wow. he was you know of course, and he was a tough customer. He liked it up to a point, and I think that instrument inspired him, especially the you know with the special pedal things in the Volstein, um, was inspired by that instrument. But pretty soon he got dissatisfied with it. 
but it's but it's interesting. It's something that I was not so aware of until recently. There's some excellent articles about it. Did Ravel uh, play and compose on an Erard? I... Possibly, or a Playel. Um... Yeah, no, I think it's an Erard because I I was I've been to his house. Well, in um, from Amory in uh, outside of Paris, and uh, there's an Erard there, and I played uh, Tumble de Couperin on it. Oh my gosh! And he composed on that piano the two oh. piano concertos, the left wow. hand, and then the. It was very interesting because when I spoke to the woman there who was the docent, Madame Moreau, she said that an old man until very recently passed away, when he was a little boy, was lived nearby and heard Ravel composing the two concertos. It was a tiny town, you know. Isn't that amazing? Montfort-la-Marie, yes, fabulous. Um. We've talked about various composers and your approach, but there is something that is wonderful about your playing. There are pianists who are pianists, and then when they appear with orchestra, they often do not know what to do. I've had that experience as a conductor, without naming names. And then there are pianists who've who've done chamber music, who've done a good deal of concerti, and also have done solo work, like you. You've been in all three realms, apart from the whole professor of piano at, at UT Austin thing. Don't you think that your chamber music playing, and you've done the complete chamber music literature, don't you think that's, that informs everything that you do? And also, you've accompanied singers, too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, um... And how? And how, Anton? Tell me how. When you play chamber music, it makes you listen on a totally different level. I think if you only play solo music, you you develop a whole you sort of it's kind of egocentric. I mean, you you know it's only you 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 all the time. Right. But when you play when you play with and I was lucky enough to do this from an early age. I've always it's always been my first love. I don't think there is anything that I enjoy more than to play chamber music with good people. Right. And over the years, you know, I encountered these fantastic people that I play with, who, I mean, it's so enriching because you they actually have the ability to make you sound better than you actually are. And, you know, and when you come back and play on your own, you don't think just piano anymore. I, I, I say this to my students often too. I mean, and it's kind of, it's, it's a fairly shocking thing to say, but, but it's really true. I mean, I, I mean, I like the piano, you know, of course, fine, but I love music. There's a difference. <laughs> that Because for me, it's about the love of music. It's not about playing the piano because that's just a small part of the whole thing. So when you play with orchestra, no matter whether it's, it can be the grandest and the biggest thing, it is still chamber music. Whether whether you're Thank playing you. a Mozart concerto or the Rachmaninoff third, it is the same. It is, it is. And there's no question about it. And that is when I enjoy working with a pianist as a conductor the most when that person has been through that regimen and has enjoyed it. Um, to finish some of our talk, and this has just been so beautiful to talk to you about shop and your love of music, it is so true that in the playing of Anton Nell, your love of music of, of all kinds comes through. And the experience you've had in chamber music certainly enriches the piano playing that you've got uh, as a soloist. One thing I've noticed about some musicians is that some are athletes, but not necessarily great musicians. They have great athletic... I mean, it's like great basketball players, but they're not leading... You know, they're, they're taking the shots, but they're not 
leading the team to a win, to use, you know, the difference between, uh, you know, two different basketball players. Mm -hmm. So it's very true of musicians, too. And it's something that I've noticed. So your focus on getting your students to do more chamber music, do more song recitals, it's gonna ha it, it has to lead to greater results, don't you think? Of course, of course. I mean, it is, it is that. I mean, for me, unfortunately, and I think we have technology to blame partly for it. You know, there is such an accent nowadays because of, you know, these perfect CDs and the recordings and things like that. And, and also, of course, competitions that are, you know, a diamond. People tend to, there's such a tremendous focus on the technical side of it and, uh, and especially training, the training of young people. I mean, I'm all for, of course, developing physically as soon as you can because there, yeah. there comes a point where you know things do slow down and you can't do it yeah. but 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 not at the cost of the other stuff i mean that was oh, where right. i was so lucky as a young person because i was born with i mean i was a late starter i didn't plan i couldn't plan until i was 10 but i was you know i was a natural sort of at the instrument but my teacher nonetheless there was a there was a certain technical regime that I did do it, but the accent was never on that. I mean, lessons were, and I was challenged too. I mean, as a teenager, and of course I wanted to play fast, but he was a no. So I had, you know, things like the Mozart C minor fantasy and the Romeo in A minor. I mean, oh torture for a 15 year old, that is torture. Or slow preludes and fugues of Bach, you know, no pedal, you know. So I am forever grateful. And, you know, th I mean, and I played, you know, big. I, the first time I played, you know, the Tchaikovsky concerto, I was 15, for example. And I mean, I could, man I could manage it, but he was, my teacher was always the least happy with the lyrical things. I could never play them quite to his satisfaction. And it was great because I was challenged in that way. So that was always first and foremost in my mind. Now, we've lived through a very difficult period. Um, we were discussing before we came on, you know, how we've basically been restricted. And so many opportunities have passed. Yes. God willing, we're in a period where this world will be inoculated and this thing will be beaten. Thankfully, you, you and your loved ones were not exp exposed as I was. But Shame. we're alive, we're talking. So... I know what I've learned from this experience. What have you learned? Well, it really was a very... It has been a fascinating time, actually. I mean, I I have felt... Um, well, I have felt so lucky that I've been able to... Uh, that I've been able to keep working because so many of my friends have not been as lucky. I mean, of course, I lost a year's worth of concerts, but I had my... My university job continued, and this lovely room that I'm in, I could use to teach in. I taught, I taught in person because my students could come here. Um, I feel so lucky because I could do a lot of. I, I've learned more about technology than I ever wanted to, but you know, I've sort of become a producer. <laughs> well, this show <laughs> because I've done so many of these bloody virtual. I'm so sick of them, but I did I many, and they were and they were useful and they were great. But um, but you know what I also learned. I, you know what I also learned a lot of music. It was just fun, and I challenged myself to. Um, I learned a lot of basic things that I've always wanted to do. But but I also challenged myself to learn things out of my comfort zone. I mean, just this morning, this was a screen. You would like this right before I came on with you. What was I practicing? Goodbye, Dulina, David Baker. 
Arturo Marquez. Now, this is not music you would associate with me, right? No. But but I learned all, so I did that, you know, and I learned um, I learned some of the George Walker sonatas. I um, good for you. Oh yeah, and and so you know, I I did things like I read through all of the Albanian Iberia because I thought that I should know it. You know, oh, I just so I you went, would be great in that music. Oh no, my hands are too fat. No, they're very. It's <laughs> no, I sound horrible on it. But 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 all of this stuff, I feel you know. So I did a lot of things for my educational um, thing. It was it was nice. I mean, I um, I I I don't I enjoy being by myself. You know, so I immersed myself in a lot of things. Um, I feel, uh, I mean, certainly I feel enriched in a certain way, but I also, you know, all of us, you know, this is not exactly what we signed up for. I've started yeah. to play, I've started to play some concerts for people again, and a, 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 a couple of weeks ago, no, a month now, sorry, I, I played my first real in-person concerts down with the San Antonio Symphony. I played the last Mozart concerto, which I picked specifically for this reason. And let me tell you something, that it was unbelievable. It was sort of like mm -hmm. um, a debut all over again. But, you know, and everybody is so, you know, they, they the hall is large, so they could let it's a few people. beautiful hall. Oh, it's so beautiful. But, you know, so you play and you know what, you know, it's just amazing. And, and you can't, you know, it's, and then at the end, of course, everybody is very appreciative and so on. And so, so I had to play an encore and uh, I was getting ready to announce it, you know, and I realized I couldn't speak. I was just completely a wreck. I just had to sit there for a minute because the whole thing is overwhelming. It um, is. It is. It's very emotional. It's like when, yeah. we, when we get our first vaccine shot, it's very emotional. Yes, Listen. Yeah, yes it's true. Antonelle. All of us cannot wait to hear you in concert live and together and enjoying life because your playing is all about giving and all about Thank life. Thank you. It is, and it is so deeply musical and personal. Thank I cannot you. thank you enough, Antonelle. Great pianist for being on Interplay. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, and thank you, audience, for watching Interplay Conversations and Music this week with Antonelle. I'm Michael Shapiro, your host.